What is mysticism? Mysticism is the art of union with reality. The mystic is a person who has attained that union in greater or less degree, or who aims at and believes in such an attainment. The early 20th century British writer of mysticism and spirituality, Evelyn Underhill, said this in her book Practical Mysticism, written just shortly before World War I, as the world paused on the brink of catastrophe. She dedicated her book to, quote, an unknown future, at a time when very real worries and concerns were gripping the world she puts to bed the notion that mysticism is impractical, or what she says, selfish, idle, or dreamy. In another work, she states, the Christian mystic is one for whom God and Christ are not merely objects of belief, but living facts experimentally known firsthand. Union with reality is the union with our Creator, contemplating the awareness of love and God's presence in the moment. This is a higher reality. Hello and welcome to Sacred Musings. In this episode, we will be taking a look at Christian mysticism. In this second installment of a five-part series on Christian spirituality, I am the Reverend Jennifer Chatfield, the rector of St. Edmund's Episcopal Church in San Marino, California, and I'm delighted you are listening in. I opened with a quote from Evelyn Underhill. During her lifetime, in the early 20th century, she wrote 40 books and over 350 articles on the life of the spirit. She was the first woman to lecture at Oxford University in 1921 and became a sought-after retreat leader for clergy and others in the Church of England. Her mission was to reclaim mysticism from the misconception of promoting idleness and superstition to the recognition that mysticism leads to an active holiness. In other words, it's practical. What is mysticism? And is it synonymous with spirituality? What use is mysticism? And what more pointedly is Christian mysticism? While Evelyn Underhill got some pushback for going through with the publication of her book on mysticism during the world crisis of being on the brink of war at the turn of the 20th century, she ultimately decided that to go ahead with the publication of her book was indeed practical. Practical because, in her words, practical mysticism means nothing if the attitude and the discipline which it recommends be adapted to fair weather alone. Meaning that it is precisely in times of crisis where mysticism is an important value for humanity, 
If, as mystics claim, mysticism cultivates a higher truth and a greater reality of being, then, she says, that value is increased rather than lessened when confronted by the overwhelming disharmonies and sufferings of the present time. As we learned in Episode 1 of this series on Christian spirituality, there are many ways to define spirituality. Well, the same is true for mysticism. 30 minutes of a podcast isn't enough to delve deeply into all that Christian mysticism has to offer. This is simply a reminder that mysticism exists in Christianity. This is a small sampling in the hopes that you will be interested to investigate further what may interest you on your spiritual journey. All mainstream religions have a form of mysticism. In general, we can say that mysticism is defined by what we believe to be a spiritual experience. Some forms of mysticism have the goal of enlightenment that is centered on the idea of of becoming the same as God or what is perceived to be God. The difference between this concept found in some forms of mysticism and other meditative practices that we might find in Buddhism, for example, is that Christian mysticism seeks the deeper communion and participation with God as the Creator. As I talked about in the previous episode, in the beginning, God the Creator created us, and we are God's creatures. We are not God, and never will be God. Sometimes you may hear or read about mystics who speak of union with God. Union with God is not the same as being equal to God or sharing in the power of God. Union with God is handing over our minds, bodies, and souls to God, recognizing the differentiation between creator and created. I like being created. I find this very reassuring and a relief. Back before I was a believing Christian, I thought for sure it was up to me to control the universe. I remember being so relieved when I was able to claim my place in the world as a creature of God rather than someone who had to somehow control the forces of nature to do my bidding. You may have heard it in the church, or you may have asked a priest a question about what something in the church or scripture or doctrine meant. And the priest may have looked at you with a pained look on his or her face and replied to you and your difficult question with, well, we don't really know. It's a mystery. And you may have thought that that was a cop-out. Mysticism comes from the same word as mystery, from the Greek word mystikos, which means hidden or secret. Now, just because something is framed a mystery or comes from the word mystery, this doesn't mean that there isn't an answer 
or that it can't be explained in some sort of ingestible way. When something is a mystery, it simply means that this something may just have to be discovered. And it is by taking the journey to discovery that we learn what this something is and that an answer is formed by way of the journey itself. The important element of Christian mysticism, as opposed to other forms of mysticism, is that the goal of Christian mysticism is to focus on and contemplate Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his teaching and healing, his suffering, his passion, his death and resurrection. Christian mysticism is about the experience itself, the experience of the presence of God. Where spirituality is about being in relationship with God and living a life in this relationship, mysticism focuses in part on the experience of what we call presence, God's presence, and more specifically, our recognition of this presence. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we hear, I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Rooted and grounded in love. Underhill calls mysticism the unseen science of love. Certainly as we contemplate the work of Jesus in the world and the creation as a creature of the Creator, we must certainly invest in the contemplation of love. So let's backtrack a bit and muse on the question, what is love in the Bible? Well, there are three main types of love in the Bible. Philia, friendship, brotherly or sisterly love. Eros, romantic love. Agape or agapeo, unconditional love. There are many quotes in the New Testament that refer to this agape love. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In 1 John we hear, 
We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Agape, in a nutshell, is unconditional love, sometimes defined as charity, a giving that doesn't expect something in return. There are no conditions that no matter the circumstances, that love still exists and will continue to exist. There is no quid pro quo. Agape love is a love that weathers through the disappointments, the mistakes, and whatever else happens in life. Sometimes we see this as sacrificing our own needs for the sake of others. Also in 1 John, we hear simply, God is love. Tertullian, an early Christian theologian writing in the second century, says that what marks us, Christians, in the eyes of our enemies is our loving kindness. Look, they say, look how they love one another. This type of love is a committed love. That no matter what happens in life, this love still exists. This is the kind of love that is called God's love. God makes a covenant with us, and this covenant is a major theme throughout Scripture. Again, we go back to creation and God's act of creation itself. We can say that the very act of creation is agape love. After the flood, God makes a promise with humanity through the sign of the rainbow, a sign of God's covenant to remain, as Psalm 136 says, steadfast with a love that endures forever. All throughout Scripture, despite the failings of the people, God reiterates God's promise. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Jesus confirms the promises that God made, as Paul tells us in Romans, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God, for his mercy. Jesus confirms the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And I'm just going to add in matriarchs here as well. As Christians, we look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to formulate and articulate God's love for us. This love is throughout the Hebrew scriptures and then is reaffirmed by the work of Jesus and by the sacrifice of the cross and the amazing grace and glory and miracle of the resurrection. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in the words of Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, we are able to say to God, quote, Don't look at our failures. You know, Lord God, that humanity is more than this, because you have made it more than this. 
You know that humanity is more than me and my miserable and wretched and incompetent struggles to be human because you have given to the world perfect humanity, Jesus's humanity. And in association with that new human nature, I can be at peace with you, my sins forgiven, my injuries healed, a new creation. The absolute creative love of God has done only what God can do and has given a completely new start to the world. Jesus has cleared the ground for a new human nature. As spirituality is living a life in love, when writing about mysticism, Underhill does not make an argument for a spiritual versus material argument. Writing at the time when the world was on the brink of world war, she saw this science of love as a most practical concern. She writes to ward off the notion that mysticism is only fit for, quote, idle women and poets. Even today, there are those who say, especially when there is a crisis, that prayers and thoughts are great and all, but we need to do something to beat the crisis we're in. Take action. Thoughts and prayers are just not enough. How often have we heard this? Well, like most things that are set up for us to view as a dichotomy, there is always room for a both and or as we like to say in the Episcopal Church, a middle way. There is room for both faith and action, prayer and works, always. Carl McCullman has written a book called The Big Book of Christian Mysticism. In it, he reminds us that Christian mysticism is more than just learning how to meditate. He says that any serious exploration of Christian mysticism has to look at the nuts and bolts of the Christian religion in order to do justice to the topic. That Christian mysticism is more than just mysticism with a little Jesus mixed in. It is actually a unique distinct, and beautiful expression of God's love and truth. It is about the mystery of a God who became flesh, or of a God whose very nature consists of loving relationships. So let's get back to the practical on our way to exploring specific practices. Let's look at contemplation, or better known as contemplative prayer. The goal of contemplation is to get us to the heart of the matter, literally, to get out of our heads and into our heart, to attain a deeper awareness of life all around us. This is the action of contemplating our lives, being linked to all living things, focusing on the ordinary objects found around us in life, merging our sensibilities with an object in an attempt to connect with creation. The more we connect with the world around us, 
seeing all other created entities and creatures of God. Then from a practical standpoint, in the big picture, the concept of engaging in a world war wouldn't even be an option in a world that incorporated mysticism. In contemplation of divine love and the importance of every little thing in creation, the English medieval mystic Julian of Norwich, whose feast day just happens to be celebrated this week on May 8th, writes, And in this he, the good Lord, showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me, and it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because of its littleness it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and always will, because God loves it, and thus everything has being through the love of God. In this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it, the second that God loves it, and the third that God keeps it. This is the awareness that fuels many aspects of the ministry of Jesus, from his healing of those who were deemed untouchable, to his inclusion of the rejected, to his self-sacrifice for all of humanity. God made it, God loves it, and God keeps it. One way to get this kind of awareness is the act of contemplation on an object. Observing an object not only as a way to train one's mind to stillness, but in Julian of Norwich's case, to see the essence of the object itself as a creation of God and therefore coming to an awareness or attentiveness to its nature. In this instance, this contemplation on the vision, the showing that God had provided, opened up an awareness of God's love and God's commitment of that love, even with the tiniest of created things. The practice of contemplation is a way to quiet and open up to receive from God and be in the presence of God. At the end of this episode, I will outline two examples of contemplative prayer that you can practice during the week. So just to repeat, the practice of contemplation is a way to quiet and open up, to receive from God and be in the presence of God. So let's now talk about presence. What is the presence of God? Theologian Thomas Oden summarizes presence this way. God is naturally present in every aspect of the natural order. God is actively present in a different way in every event in history. God is in a special way attentively present to those who call upon his name. God is 
judicially present in moral awareness through conscience. God is bodily present in the incarnation of his Son. God is mystically present in the Eucharist. God is sacredly present and becomes known in special places where God chooses to meet us. Mysticism is when we are conscious of the presence of God. God's presence can be experienced in such a variety of ways we can't possibly categorize or understand. And that is the beauty of it all. We don't know. It's a mystery. We can experience the presence of God in all things. God's presence is as varied as our prayers will allow. So the takeaway for us today is God participates and we work to be aware of this participation. Through the eyes of the mystic Julian of Norwich, we've seen how experiencing creation reveals the love between the creator and the created, and that contemplation on God's creation can lead us to this love of creation as well. This is what Evelyn Underhill saw as practical. Shouldn't this be as useful as anything else we do every day for survival? Shouldn't recognizing love and living in love be practical? A practical usage of mysticism is found in the act of contemplation, learning how to live in the present moment. Martin Laird writes in his book, Into the Silent Land, A Guide to the Christian Practice of Contemplation, quote, Wisdom, health, Life and love cannot be found in trying to control the wind, but rather in harnessing the wind in the sails of receptive engagement of the present moment. End quote. In other words, we cannot control what we did not create, but we can learn to exist in the present moment in order to cope, learn, or adjust to what we cannot control and to be awakened to a higher truth or reality. And as we learned in the last episode when talking about the Spirit, the Spirit inspires us to be creative with how we cope, learn, or imagine. If we are too busy figuring out how things should be, we will find ourselves disappointed when those things don't work out the way we have foreseen them to be. But when we learn to live in the present in the presence, we may just surprise ourselves to see something we didn't plan on seeing. So I began with Evelyn Underhill and her quest to articulate the practical nature of mysticism. And I'll end this section with Underhill's bottom line for practical mysticism. Therefore, contemplation, even at its highest, dearest and most intimate, is not to be for you an end in itself. It shall only be truly yours when it impels you to action, when the double movement of transcendent love 
drawing inwards to unity and fruition, and rushing out again to creative acts, is realized in you. Contemplating creation. God's love in creation leads to action in the world to perpetuate the same. Pretty practical, wouldn't you say? So what kinds of contemplative practices are there? Today we're going to look at two, contemplation on an object and centering prayer using a prayer word. Contemplation on an object is a simple way to muse on God's creation and our place within the tapestry of all living things. Take a moment to pick an object, a flower, a tree, a piece of fruit, a bird resting on a wire. The goal is to meditate on the simple beauty in an object of God's creation. After you've chosen an object, center yourself in a place that is comfortable and either gaze on the object in nature or place your object in front of you. Start by turning your focus to your breathing. Take a breath in, and then let this breath out. Again, focus on your breathing. Remembering the exercise from episode one, the connection of God's presence and spirit in each breath as you inhale and exhale. As you begin to relax and feel that you are centered, now direct your attention to the object of God's creation sitting before you. Ask God in your mind to reveal God's self to you as you contemplate this object. Ask God in your mind to reveal to you the essence of this one object. Repeat these questions if you find yourself getting distracted. Take as long as it takes as you continue to remark on the wonderful contours, smells, sights, and movements of this object. What bubbles to the surface of your mind? Continue this for about 15 to 20 minutes and be sure to write down any thoughts you may have after engaging in this exercise.
This next exercise is centering prayer using a prayer word. The word we are going to use is simply Jesus. First, let's ask the Shakespearean question, what is in a name? Remember earlier I quoted Carl McCullman, who reminds us that any serious exploration of Christian mysticism has to look at the nuts and bolts of the Christian religion in order to do justice to the topic. So in the name of Jesus, what are we contemplating? What is in this name? You may recall in the season of Advent in Matthew, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him that he is to name the baby given to Mary, Jesus. For this baby will save people from their sins. Jesus comes from the Hebrew for Joshua or Yeshua, which means God saves. I'm sure you've seen signs or bumper stickers that say, Jesus saves. Or someone on a street corner has shoved a pamphlet about the end of the world in your hand as they ask you if you are saved. I believe that one of the most important things we can ask ourselves is, not only who do you say that Jesus is, remember Jesus asks Peter this question, who do you say that I am, and Peter answers the Messiah, and he gets it right. But more importantly, we must ask, who is Jesus to me? What does the name Jesus mean to me? Each of us must ask that question. And it starts with a name. If Jesus means God saves, if like Moses and then Joshua in Hebrew scriptures, Jesus is the one to lead us all into the promised land, delivering us from oppression and bondage, then Jesus is a savior. When we invoke the name Jesus in prayer, then we believe that to be saved is to believe in some sort of transformation for the human condition, not based on political, military, or strictly human endeavors. Certainly kings and emperors over history were called saviors, but Jesus as savior is different. We're talking about salvation. A way to think about salvation is the breaking of the barrier between humanity and God, tearing the curtain in the temple in half. And this barrier is made up of our sins which reject God. If sin means, for instance, alienation, captivity, and guilt, salvation would mean reconciliation, liberation, and forgiveness. To be saved is to embark on the journey from bondage and slavery toward a land of promise, and Jesus leads us on that journey. So does it really matter whether we say God or we say Jesus when we pray? I get this question a lot. I also hear people say often, 
I find it easier to pray to God, but find it difficult to pray to Jesus or to say Jesus' name when I pray. I think that this is common because God encompasses everything, right? God is so vast, so unknowable, so we can pray to God and know that our prayers will land somewhere in that great vastness. Our prayers will stick to something. But when we say the name of Jesus in prayer, we are much more specific. We give importance to the one born into this world as God. After all, it is only God who can save. And some of us may feel that when we pray to Jesus or if our prayers become too Jesus-centered, then we aren't being inclusive or we are somehow excluding others who may not believe in Jesus. What else is in a name? Well, Christ means the Anointed One. So used together, we confirm that Jesus, the one who saves, the one born to Mary, whose name was given by God as told by the angel to Joseph, is the Anointed One. So what's in a name? Everything is in a name when it comes to Jesus. A name that is used in scripture to denote authority, to whom miracles and exorcisms are performed, by whom we know the love of God. When we pray or say the name Jesus, we invoke God's presence with us. As the one who saves, everything is in this name. As you pray today with the name of Jesus, let God reveal to you who Jesus is and who Jesus is to you. Once again, find a comfortable, quiet place to sit and close your eyes. Go back to breathing in and out. Remembering that with each breath you are taking in the life-giving, creative breath of God. Breathe in and breathe out. Keep doing this until you feel ready to begin. Simply say the name Jesus, either silently or aloud. Repeat the name of Jesus, but don't worry about repeating this over and over. Let your thoughts guide you. When your thoughts wander, go back to the name Jesus. Say it again. 
Jesus. What comes up for you? What does God reveal to you? Don't forget to write down your thoughts and practice this throughout the week. Remember, mysticism is the movement from head to heart, experiencing the presence of God in all that we are and in all that is around us. Once again, Evelyn Underhill. Therefore, contemplation, even at its highest, dearest, and most intimate, is not to be for you an end in itself. It shall only be truly yours when it impels you to action, when the double movement of transcendent love drawing inwards to unity and fruition and rushing out again to creative acts is realized in you.